0: Thank you for the privilege you have given us to be um, salt and light to this world and even just this week, the sobering decision by our own courts, Lord, to endorse, Father, a a lifestyle which is contrary to your design. Lord, we entrust you with circumstances in our lives and know even through this, God, you have a purpose. And Lord, I pray today, Lord, as many of us go out to put these door hangers up, to let folks know in the community about the Vacation Bible School here, and maybe even opportunities to proclaim your son in those conversations. I pray, Lord, that you would stir in us just a a passion for the lost, for those around us, that we would seek to honor Christ. I pray, Lord, now as we look to your word That Christ would be exalted, that you would give us understanding, and that we would be encouraged, Lord, by the fact that who you are and what you are doing in this world. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, someone asked me this week, "Uh, what are you going to do for your farewell message this Sunday? And I thought, my farewell message? (laughs) I'm not leaving. But it's really like, uh, the message is kind of more like, a, I'm, uh, this is my now that I'm no longer going to preach every Sunday sort of message. And so that's too long of a title to put out on the marquee on the front. So, um, we'll just call this the sort of last message. But, um, I thought it'd be appropriate for it to, to step away from Zechariah and, uh, we'll finish him off as time allows and we'll look to Malachi as well when I'm given opportunity to, to fill in for Pastor Kempis. But today I wanted to talk about, How to deal with transitions in life. Dealing with change. Because certainly I and my family are undergoing a a significant change. Not only in my role here at Calvary, but also in the increased ministry opportunities overseas. It's a big change for me. It's a big change for us. And I know that I'm not the only one right now going through change. I am certain that we all will experience change, right? That's just the way it is in life. In fact, you've probably heard it said the only thing constant in life is change. Or, as author Robert Gallagher put it, change is inevitable, except from a vending machine. <laughs> you've been there, right? Ah, come out of there! Anyway, Benjamin Franklin said, when you're finished changing, you're finished. I think truer words were never spoken. For we all undergo change, we all experience shifts in life, uh, the either expected ones or the unexpected, some good, some bad, some small, some big, some long, extended ones, some that are short, some that are uplifting, some that are painful, some changes that we bring about on ourselves and others that we don't. Solomon speaks of change in his well-known poem in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where he says these words, you'll remember as I hear them, there is an appointed time for everything he says there's a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear apart and a time to sew together. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. It's eloquently put, life is change. And that change, whether good or bad, that change is not always easy, is it? It can bring worry or discomfort, uneasiness, uncertainty, loathing, doubt, pain, even fear. And so when confronted with change, we must have an anchor for the soul. We must have a refuge for the heart to go to, especially if that change is a difficult one. You find out that a loved one has cancer or some serious illness. You lose your job. You've been evicted. You have children. They grow up and they move out. That's a difficult transition. Or somebody you care about hurts you very deeply. Or you don't know how you're going to make the rent this month. Or you lose someone that you love. Or many other things, many other changes, many other challenges that come about in life. And where do you go when these things happen? What do you do? Where will you find comfort? What will give you the strength to keep going? Well, as I've been reflecting on these changes in my own life, I found myself coming back to a familiar and beloved text. One really that's been called one of the mountain peaks of Scripture. This passage is like that favorite picture that you go to, or that song that you love, or that person or place that you always go back to. This passage is like an old friend. One that you can always count on to tell you what you need to hear. And we find it in Romans 8, from the very chapter that I read from earlier this morning. So if you could please turn there, Romans chapter 8. There's so many wonderful truths in this chapter, aren't there? I mean, just... That, that, that when you're in that chapter, and particularly in a verse that I'm going to focus on this morning, that verse it feels like you know when you're sitting uh, on the beach at sunset, or when you're in a quiet forest and uh, uh, by a water brook, or in your familiar and comforting chair. I mean, it, it, this passage, this text is it's calming, it's inspiring, it's familiar, it's that anchor for the soul in the storms of life. And I'm speaking of Romans eight twenty-eight. We find this verse in the midst of a section where Paul is talking about change. Often difficult change, hardships and trials. If you look back in verse 17, he says, If we indeed suffer with Him. Or verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time. Or verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. Verse 23, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Verse 26, the Spirit also helps our weakness. Later in verse 35, he speaks of tribulation, persecution, peril, sword, famine, distress. Verse 36, he says, we're being put to death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. So we we see in this chapter that that we're part of a creation that's decaying. One that is under constant change and usually not for the better. We groan, we suffer, we wait. Paul even indicates here we don't even know how we should pray, to pray as we should. But in the midst of all this, notice Paul gives several encouragements. He says in verse 26 that the Spirit intercedes for our prayers. In verse 31, he says that God is for us. In verse 32, that God did not spare His own Son for us. In verse 37, that we overwhelmingly conquer through Him. In verse 39, that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And if that weren't enough, he adds to that list these words in verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. These words, indeed, are like a a healing balm to a troubled soul. In fact, John Stott referred to them as a pillow on which to rest our weary heads. And it's in these words that I want to focus us in particular on three truths To focus on in the midst of change. Three truths to preach to yourself when life takes a turn, especially a difficult turn, especially a hard turn. The first truth here is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Going back to Solomon's poem, he began his poem by saying there's an appointed time for everything. And he wasn't saying there that it's fate or the alignment of the stars which appoints those times of change, right? Solomon was saying right from the beginning, God has made everything appropriate in its time. That's exactly what we see here in Romans 8.28. God causes, he works all things together for good, he says. And if you have an ESV Bible, you'll notice that it reads, all things work together for good. Or if you have an NIV Bible, you'll see it says, in all things God works for the good. Those might sound a little bit different, and the reason for that, without getting in all the technical details of the original Greek text, is that these translations are all grammatically possible. The subject of the verb, work together, could be all things, or could be he in reference to God. And I think the best case can be made for how the NIV puts it, in all things, he, that is God, works for the good. And it's based on two reasons primarily. One is the context here. If you notice, every verb here except the verb "know," is a verb whose subject is God. God is the one taking action here in every instance in verses 26 to 30. And so it would make sense here that verb work together would also have God as the main actor, the main agent. And secondly, if it were to be all things work together for God, that would seem to imply that, that inanimate objects or fate is what is involved in our lives. But we know the message is clear here because Paul says we know. We know that God is the one who works in all things. He is the one who makes all things work together. He is the one that is at work. He is using all things to bring about his purposes in our lives. That word work together, there's a word that we get uh, synergy from. It's this idea of bringing something together to help, to assist, to bring about. It's God who's the one bringing some things together. He is the agent. He is the architect. He is the grand designer. He is the operating force. And what we have here then is a declaration that God is sovereign. That not only does he have the right to exercise control over his creation, because he made it, but that he also has the power to exercise that control. And the scriptures declare, not only here, but in many places, passage after passage. I know you're familiar with many of them, but let me just remind you of them. Ephesians 1.11, that says that God works all things after the counsel of his will. God says in Isaiah 46.9, I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and saying my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Daniel 4.35 says, He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. Or Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. Or Psalm 115, verse 3, it says, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. And I could go on and on, but those passages are saying essentially this, God does whatever He wants to do, and no one can say otherwise. God does whatever He wants. I think it was R.C. Sproul who said there are uh, no rogue molecules in the universe. A W. Tozer said that even if one stray atom, and think about this, even if one stray atom would belong to someone else, then God would be a limited ruler and hence not sovereign. But beloved, God works all things after the counsel of his will. Proverbs 16:9 says, the mind of a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. James 4:15 says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Or Lamentations three thirty-seven: Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass, unless the Lord commanded it? Now, some may be thinking, well, okay, I, I, I can understand that in the big things in life, the big events, the major situations, the major circumstances. But what about the small things? You're saying God's in control of those things too. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Keep that one in mind if you ever decide to go to Vegas. As those dice are rolled, whatever turns up. Wasn't chance, wasn't fate, wasn't luck, wasn't circumstance. It says here, the lot is cast in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Okay, well that's talking about dice. Every atom... God's in control of every atom? Where does the Bible say that? Well, Colossians 1.17 says, He, that is Christ, is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Or in Hebrews 1.3, it says that Christ upholds all things by the word of His power. And in both of those passages, in the context there, all things refers to Creation. It is He who keeps every atom in the universe in its place and moves it only when He decides it to move. Ponder that a minute. Staggering to think about. But God's word is clear that He is sovereign, that there's no action that happens outside of His control. And that means then that He is sovereign not only in the major events in the universe, not only minor events in the universe, but in our very lives. He is sovereign. Over all that happens to us, including the changes. And it is important that we understand that those changes that he is sovereign over... ...are both the positive ones and the negative ones. Did not Solomon say there is an appointed time to laugh and to weep? A time, an appointed time to mourn and to dance? He said later in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 13... ...Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy... But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. Let me read that part again. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. He gives both prosperity and adversity. That dear woman Hannah, Samuel's mother, she affirmed this when she said in 1 Samuel 2.6, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low. He also exalts. She understood this. We've seen it time and again in the prophets. God bringing, orchestrating, sovereignly controlling both the, the difficult and the good. Both the positive and the adversities within the prophets. You remember in, in Joel that plague that came upon the people in Judah. Joel 2.25 says God was the one who sent it. Or Jonah, right? Think about all that happened in his situation that we have in the scriptures, in the book of Jonah, right? God caused a great storm. God brought about the great wind. God sent the great fish. God caused the, the, that plant to grow and then to wither. And also, God was the one who graciously brought that prophet to Nineveh to proclaim a message they needed to hear so that they would repent. Habakkuk 1.6 says that God was the one who raised up the Babylonians to discipline his people. And Haggai 1.11, God says that he was the one who brought the drought. And it was God who graciously raised up Haggai and Zechariah to encourage the people to build. Probably the most well-known story, you know Joseph's story. He experienced the bad and the good, didn't he? Think about his life, from the, the favored son to being sold into slavery by his own brothers, to being falsely accused of rape, to being put into prison, to then be being put second in command in all Egypt, and then being used through that to preserve, to save his own family from starvation during the great famine that took place. It's an amazing story, and it's one in which Joseph himself recognized God's hand was in it all. Right? You remember that famous confrontation between he and his brothers, and they're worried about what he's going to do to them, because now he's the, he's the chief cheese, the big cheese in Egypt. But He says in Genesis 45, 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore, he said to them, it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me ruler over the land of Egypt. Indeed, Joseph's brothers sinned greatly against him by selling him into slavery. They weren't forced to do that, right? God didn't make them do that. They chose to do that. But even in that sin that was all part of the grand scheme of God to bring Joseph to the place where he could be used to ultimately preserve the nation of Israel. And he went through both the good and the bad. Like Joseph, Job too knew God's sovereign hand was in his life both for the good and the bad isn't that what he said after he lost essentially everything he said the lord gave and the lord has taken away and not long after that he told his complaining wife shall we indeed accept good from god and not adversity and we could go on story after story and passage after passage all throughout the scripture showing god is behind it all the good and the adversity and maybe at this point you're thinking okay tim didn't I saw the title out front. It said a comforting truth. And uh, we're talking here about God's sovereignty, but, but I'm not so comforted. Are you saying all the bad stuff is because of God too, that it comes from Him, that He's in control over that as well? Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm reading you passages from the Word. God is speaking these things. He is the one communicating these truths. Remember Solomon's words. God has made the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. Remember Hannah's words. God brings low. He also exalts. Now God isn't the author of sin. right? He doesn't force people to sin. He didn't force Joseph's brothers to sin. But he did use their sin. And he uses sin as well as trials, as well as circumstances. Even Satan himself. God will use in order to accomplish his purposes. Okay, Tim, but I'm still not very encouraged. (laughs) Well, let me focus you on the encouraging part. Realize this, beloved, especially when bad things happen, especially when you encounter affliction or trials or difficulties or suffering. Remember this, God is at the helm. God is at the helm. He is the one in control. Remember, it's His universe. And he's running it. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And there are no human beings, no physical laws of nature, no other powers, no evil forces. There's nothing or no one that can supersede or overpower God to do what they want. Again, there's no one. Remember Lamentations 3.37 that I read earlier. Who is there, he says, who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Beloved, not one atom is out of place. And those of you familiar with physics or science know there's, there's, there's a, quite a few atoms floating around, right? That's why that thought, it just blows me away to think about. Not one atom. He upholds all things by the word of his power. No rogue molecules in his universe. And I don't know about you, but that is extremely comforting to me. Just to think about that an all wise, all good, all compassionate, just, merciful, infinite, eternal God is the one at the controls. Because consider this. What if people could do whatever they wanted without restraint? What if the wind or the clouds or the sun or the earth or the ocean could operate outside of God's control? Or think about this. What if Satan... And demons could go unchecked. What if Satan could do whatever he wanted? Think about that. Praise God. It is God who is the one who works all things. Amen. That brings us right to the doorstep of the second comforting truth in this verse. Not just that he is sovereign, but that he sovereignly works for our good. Look again at the text. It says, God causes all things to work together for our good. That's telling us that the all-powerful God who's at the controls, who controls all things, His mission, His aim, His objective, His purpose, His might, they're all focused on this very thing. They're all focused on working all things in our lives, all things in your life for your good. And it's so important to see here, Paul doesn't say God works all good things. It says that He works all things for good. It is not only that God is sovereign over the good stuff that happens, but also over the bad. He uses the good and the bad. He uses both prosperity and want, joy and sorrow, blessings and trials, successes and failures. He uses achievements and disasters. Because in verse 28, all things means all things. And actually, in the context here, it primarily means all the hard things, all the difficult things, the trials. Notice verse 17 and 18, he talks about suffering. Again, in verse 35, he speaks of persecution and distress and peril, famine. So we have to remind ourselves of this, beloved. We have to remind ourselves that whatever we face, whatever we are suffering, whatever we are going through, whatever hardships we encounter, that suffering isn't in vain that hardship is not without purpose. That ordeal is not just some random unfortunate event that has come across your path that you just are resigned you have to be resigned to accept it. Oh well. Thomas Watson said, a sick bed often teaches more than a sermon. And remember in that sick bed, God is behind that trial. He has a purpose in that trial. And it is a good purpose. Again, think back to Joseph's life. Can we not see how... Think about this again. What was Joseph doing before all that happened to him? Remember what he was doing? He's out watching a flock of sheep in some remote, obscure location in Canaan. That's where he was. That's what he was doing. And then he ends up second to Pharaoh. And that nation, Egypt, being among the most powerful in all the earth, he's like the second most powerful guy on the entire planet. From a shepherd in Canaan (laughs) to second in command. Indeed, Joseph would have had a very difficult time preserving his family, saving the nation of Israel. Because, by the way, that famine came, a seven-year famine. It wiped out a lot of families. If Jacob's family had been wiped out, there goes Israel. But God takes this, the, this second to the youngest, who's out shepherding a flock, raises him up through all these various circumstances, directs him to the position in Egypt to be able to preserve and save his own family, the nation of Israel, as, Mel, as well as many others. But some may say, well, that's great, but couldn't have d- God have done it in a nicer way? <laughs> I mean, that was kind of hard. Getting sold by his own brothers into slavery, then falsely accused, and in prison, and, and for years. This this didn't happen over a few months. It was over, I think, 12, 15 years that it took place. Couldn't have God given Joseph a smoother path? Yeah, he could have. Certainly, he could do whatever he wants. But in the providence of God, he used these trials in Joseph's life, not only to put Joseph in the right position at the right time, but also to mold and shape the man to be ready for that position and to be the man of faith he needed to be in the midst of that in order to do the work God had for him to do. God had purpose in everything that happened in Joseph's life. I think of Psalm 119, verse 71, where the psalmist says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. You know, sometimes we undergo afflictions or suffering or difficulties in our lives, not because we have strayed or be, as a consequence for our sin or as some form of correction. Sometimes God brings those trials and difficulties to strengthen us, to train us for holiness. Hebrews 5 8 is another one of those remarkable passages where it says about Jesus that although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. That is quite profound. It tells us that Jesus suffered, but not as correction. He never sinned, right? But still, the Father brought him through times of great suffering in order to, to teach him, to train him in obedience. Not that he was tempted to disobey, but the, so he would learn obedience to prepare him for the ultimate act of obedience in going to the cross and suffering for the sins of humanity. The father was preparing the son for that. Wait a minute. Isn't Jesus God? Yes, he is. But he chose to set aside his prerogatives as God, not his essence, not his deity. He is always God, always has been, always will be. But when he became man, he chose to live as a man. Philippians 2 talks about that. In fact, Luke 2.52 says Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and in stature. And so he came to earth as a man and chose to set aside his prerogatives as God to learn. And he had to learn some of these things even experientially. He had to learn experientially as a man how to obey even when in his heart. Hebrews 5.8 says he learned through affliction. Hebrews 2.10 says that God matured Jesus through suffering. To prepare him for the massive challenge that faced him in the garden father if it's your will let this cup pass god said no and he said okay whatever your will is i will follow and there are times when god will be training you when he will be preparing you for a challenge he may use suffering to do that in fact he often does that training is not easy but know that he's using it for a purpose to mature you. James 1-2, that's why he says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We'd think James was a nut if we didn't understand what was behind that passage. Consider it all joy, When you encounter various trials, because you know God is using those trials and working those trials in your life. And that training may come not only through circumstances, those trials may come not only through events that take place, but also through others' sin against you. We see that in Joseph's life, right? What was it that started that ball rolling? The sins of his brothers against him. And then the sins of Potiphar's wife falsely accusing him. Many times the source of a trial or a change in your life will be because of what someone has done against you. And you have to remember that not only did God permit that to happen, but He will use it for your good. And actually, beloved, that helps a lot to remember when it comes to needing to forgive. Consider what Acts 4.27 says, regarding what happened to Jesus, Peter said "Therefore, truly in this city, he's speaking of Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. It's an important passage. He's saying here that Peter says that, That all were gathered against Jesus, Herod, King Herod, and and Pilate, the Gentiles, the Roman soldiers, the religious leaders in Israel, those that they had stirred up against Jesus, they all were gathered together, and he says they're what? To do whatever your hand, God, and your purpose predestined to occur. God used their sin to bring about A pretty important event. Would you not say that the result and how God used their sin in the life of Christ led to the outcome being for our good? (laughs) Could you not say that? What about Christ? What about for His good? Well, think about this. Because of what all He went through and going to the cross, being unjustly tortured and butchered and murdered and bearing the sins of humanity, think about Christ's good in that what the world saw of god through that very act for what act could have shown the love the immense and infinite love and mercy and compassion of god except when he sent his son on a cross and now he's philippians 2 he's highly exalted god used those trials in the life of jesus to exalt the son of god to his right hand and to show us in a way that could not be shown as so amazing as any other, but to show us the love and grace and goodness of God. Imagine the angels, what they were thinking when they saw that. Wow. God is a God of love. And So God will use others' sin in our lives. He will also use our own sin in our lives for our good. That doesn't justify or excuse sin at all. But it is a comfort to know, even in our failures, even in our rebellion, God can use that to bring about good for us. I think of uh, Jonah, right? We looked at his story and how he had run away from God, right? And he ended up on the ship trying to, trying to run off from God and not do what God had called him to do. And so he's on this ship, and what happens? God brings the, the storm, right? Sailors, they get freaked out. They find out it's because of Jonah. They throw Jonah off of the ship. And what happened after that? You remember when he got tossed off overboard? It got calm, right? And then what happened after that? Before the big fish thing. The sailors, what did they do? It says they came to know and fear God. They offered Him sacrifice. Do you realize in Jonah's sin as he was trying to run from his responsibility to call pagans to repentance so that they might be saved, God still used him in his sin to save pagans. Amazing. (laughs) And God continued to work in Jonah as we see through the rest of the story and his own sin and using his own sin in his life to show him how to trust God and to show him what true compassion looks like. And beloved, God is able to use our sin for our good. And he does so often through the consequences that that sin brings. I think of Hebrews 12.10, which speaks of God's correction of his children and says, Therefore they, speaking of earthly fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And that is so encouraging to know that, that God, even in his correction for our sin, he is using it to bring about holiness in our lives, so that we may share his holiness, so that we may yield the peaceful fruits of righteousness. And those beloved are a good thing, are they not? Now, as we look back to Romans eight twenty-eight and we think about what does this all things mean? We've we've talked about certainly that it means, particularly in the context, the trials difficulties, hardships, suffering, even others sin against us, even our own sin, even the consequences that come about as a result of that. But all things also includes blessings and prosperity. God at times will bring those in our lives for our good. And, and I'm sure we'd all prefer that he'd use that way more often, right? <laughs> Typically he uses the harder ones, but he does use blessing and prosperity. Or all things can refer to just change in general. Change that comes about from a new job, or moving, or, or when your children have grown up, or a promotion, or a, a demotion, or a new ministry calling, or a new pastor's teacher. Just saying. That's a good change, by the way. But God works all these changes, all changes in general for good. I, I think of Abraham, when he was called from the land to go to a place he'd never been. That was a big change. I think of Gideon, remember when he was gathering the 22,000 to fight a battle, and God said, well, I'm going to change things up a little bit, Gideon. How about 300? I'll let you have 300. They can go with you. That was a significant change, something unexpected. We can look all over Scripture and see this, the changes that God brings and how He uses those changes for our good. And so, don't fear change. Don't fret about change. Don't be worried about change. Don't see it as something that has to be avoided at all costs. Because God will use it for good, even the hard changes, even the difficult ones. Now, we have to stop here a minute and talk about that word good. What what does that mean for our good? I think many people have different impressions of what is good for them. Psalm 119.71, the psalmist said, It is good for me that I was afflicted. But, but what is that good? Is it wealth? Is it happiness? Is it uh, comfort, rest, a good life, blessing? What is it, the good that God is bringing about through all things that He's working through? Well, that word for good in Romans 8.28 carries the idea of that which is morally or inherently good. It, he's not talking here about material or socially beneficial things, but of what is intrinsically good. What is most beneficial to us That which is important and has eternal significance for us. Ken Boa, who authored the talk through the Bible, which is a great resource for Bible study. Ken Boa said this, We must come to the point where we are willing to admit two truths about ourselves. First, although we think we do, we do not really know what our best interests are. And second, even if we did, we could not achieve them on our own. Only an omniscient, loving, and sovereign God knows, knows and wants what is truly best for us and is capable of bringing it about. I think that's a good point. For one, we don't really know what is best for us. I mean, just think about those of you with younger children who have had younger children. If you just said, okay, whatever you think is best, honey, just go ahead. How do you think that would turn out? Right? We're in the same boat. We don't ultimately know what is best for us. And think about this. Even if we did, do you have all power to be able to achieve that? He says, no, we don't know what's best for us. And we don't really have the ability to bring that about. But God does. That's the point. We find in verse 29 of Romans 8 the ultimate good. What is truly best for us when he says there, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. There it is, right there. That's it. That's the good. To be conformed to the image of his son. He's saying you know that everything that God brings in all things he is working to make you if you're his child to reflect better more clearly more precisely more effectively more powerfully the image of Jesus Christ. And notice it doesn't end there. It doesn't stop there. Look at the last phrase in verse 29. To be conformed to the image of his son so that for the purpose of to have the desired result be that he, that is Jesus, be the firstborn among many brethren. Do you know what he's saying here? Do you understand what he's getting at? God's bringing everything in your life. The good, the bad, the prosperity, the adversity, the trials, the difficulties, the challenges, even even Satan, even other sin, all these things he's bringing about, allowing, taking place, he's in control of all of them in order to do this, in order to make you more like Jesus so that Jesus would be seen as the firstborn. The word there is prototokos, the preeminent one, the exalted one. And this is a key point. This is where all this is going. God wants your good, brothers and sisters, and that good is to ultimately glorify Christ as you're conformed to his image so that the world would see how great he is. And as hard as change can be, as hard as trials can be, as hard as suffering can be, remember, they are being used for the most noble of purposes in your life, in our lives, because He is using them not only to bring salvation, not only to to train us in obedience and holiness, He's using them ultimately to lift up Jesus as we reflect His image. And so again, let me encourage you, remind you, your suffering is not without purpose. Let me remind you that the changes in your life are not without meaning. Your trials are not pointless. God will use them. He will use all things to exalt the wonderful name of Jesus. And here's the amazing part. Through you. There's an important footnote here to consider in verse 28. To whom is the promise addressed? Notice it says that God works all things for good for everyone. Is this a blanket promise to all people? What does he say here? God works all things for good to those who love God. Literally, the ones loving God. This is a promise only for believers. That phrase, those who love God, it's not talking about the person who all of a sudden one day has these sentimental feelings for God. And so God says, I'm going to use the circumstances in that person's day in order to bring about their good. Something good for them today because they like me today. That's, that's not what he's talking about at all here. That phrase, to those who love God, the ones loving God, it speaks of a a people who are characterized by a special, ongoing, permanent relationship with Him. It's reinforced by the last phrase in verse 28, where it says, to those who are called according to His purpose. That's a parallel statement there. To the ones who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. That's the effectual call. That is the choosing of the elect by God for salvation. Those whom God has saved are characterized by this relationship whereby there is an ongoing love for God. My question to you is, can you say that about yourself? Can you say that you are one who is loving God? Can you say you have a loyalty, an affection, a a commitment to Jesus Christ? Can you say that you, the love that, that you have a love for him that is seen in your life? Because if there is genuine love and affection for him and a desire to please him, then that will be shown in how you live your life, right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus said. But if you have not confessed your sin to Christ, if you have not expressed a desire to, to turn from that sin, to put your trust in him, to look to the cross as the only means of forgiveness, the only way to be saved... If you have not given your complete allegiance to Jesus and submitted to Him as Lord, then this promise is not for you. God is not working all things for your good. All things are working to another end, far from Christ, far from heaven, far from eternal life. So confess with your mouth, the Bible says. It's not the end of the story. There's a way out. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. The Bible promises that and with that salvation comes this incredible promise from Romans 8.28 that God will be at work in every single thing in your life. The difficult and the good to conform you to the image of his son to make you look more like Jesus so that Jesus will be lifted up and you know what? That is the place to be. That is the ultimate place of joy and blessing. Psalm 16. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, God, there are pleasures forever. There's a third truth here in Romans 8.28. I want to briefly draw your attention to it. It's found in the first three words of the verse, actually. You know, we've been focusing on that phrase, God works all things together for good to those who love God. But we skipped over what Paul said right before that phrase. If You notice the beginning of it, those first few words in verse 28, he says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And it's because of those words we know. That's why we have gone to this well-traveled text this morning. That is why we have moved to this well-worn path of truth. We've come back to this old friend because we know what it says is true. That God is sovereign, that He is in control. We know that He is the one who works all things for good. We know that He works them, all of them, if you're His child, for good in your life. We know that even the terrible, the unbelievably hard, the painful, the most difficult of trials, the tough, toughest of changes, we know, Paul says, God is using them for our good. And we know, we know that He's using everything in our lives to make us look more like jesus so that jesus would be exalted through us and because of this because we know this we need to remind ourselves of it we need to come back here over and over and over again to this truth so that we would not forget it so memorize this verse beloved meditate on it keep it near to your heart Keep it ready at all times. Remind yourself of it daily because you don't know what the next day, the next hour, or the next minute is going to bring, right? We were sitting at... um, uh, We were at our, my daughter's graduation ceremony last month in May. And as we're sitting there, uh, this older woman right next, in the section next to us just collapsed right in the middle of the ceremony. They stopped the ceremony. The paramedics came. She had no idea. Fortunately, I think she was okay um, from that, but... She, You never know, the very next second, we need this text at the ready to remind us, even in that circumstance, whatever takes place, God is at work in order to bring about our good. Because, beloved, that truth is what will keep you trusting in Him. That truth is what will strengthen you to press on. That truth is what will give you joy, as James says, even in the midst of trials. And that truth will draw you nearer to Christ, because that's where God is taking you. John Ryland wrote this: "Plagues and death around me fly till he bids I cannot die; not a single shaft can hit till the love of God sees fit." Let's pray. Oh Lord, uh, thank you for. Thank you for giving us this word, and I, I know for many of us, Lord, these. These words, this verse, is is a familiar one. but, But, Lord, it is one that we must go to constantly. We thank you for giving it to us so that we have a place to go for refuge and for strength and encouragement. Lord, to see your grace at work, that you are working all things, everything that happens, for our good, so that we would become more like Jesus. And through that, Lord, enjoy that special relationship with him. And show the world who he is. Lord, I, I know that there are many things that we are going through. Very circumstances. Some very hard. Lord, I pray that you would use your word by your spirit to bring about the comfort and the faith. Lord, to endure and to press on and even to find joy in the midst of that trial. Lord, we thank you for the good things, the blessings that you bring. and. Pray, Lord, you would use them to conform us to the image of Christ and that we would not become lazy or neglectful or apathetic in those times of blessing. That you would use them in us, again, to make us more like your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.